0: You're about to join Niels Kostrup-Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic
1: Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jim Kasang and I, Niels Kostrup-Larsen where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. If you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to some of the past episodes that you may have missed, like my conversation with Rich last week, where we laid out the key reasons why the specific correlation profile that trend-following offers investors is really unique, And if we only say we are non-correlated, we are in fact not really doing ourselves justice. There is more to the reason that trend following can not only enhance the returns of traditional portfolios, but also at the same time reduce the risk of the portfolio, and it's all explained in our conversation last week. Also, I would encourage you to listen to the midweek episode where I had the pleasure of speaking to Simon Hunt, uh, who has spent decades in the copper industry and spent a ton of time in China, so he has a unique perspective on markets and geopolitics, and he combines this with technical and cycle analysis, and his forecasts are some <laughs> ways away from the mainstream Wall Street uh, consensus, um, and uh, I think you really need to hear him out on that. Anyway, go and check them out after you listen to Gemini and I today. Jim, it's good to have you back on the Systematic Investor Series. Um, how are you doing today? Good. It's Always almost great to be here. weekend. Yeah. Here. Absolutely. I always enjoy these conversations. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, We have a great lineup of topics. We have some questions that came in uh, via Twitter. Uh, Before we dive into all of that, let me just give you a few headlines for the week. Actually, the week, there was a lot of officials uh, from the Fed out speaking, including the St. Louis president, James Bullard, who upped his view on where the fed funds should be uh, now to between 5 and 20 and 5.25% and that's up uh, from 4 and 3 quarters to 5% previously stressing this is a minimal level bullitt has been one of the more hawkish members we have to say on the fmc and given the direction of policy this year, has also been one of the more influential members. However, the Fed might start to face more resistance from the divided Congress, with Democrats warning about job losses, while Republicans continue to stress the importance of price stability. But yields did go down this week, and US home buyers got some rare good news uh, yesterday as mortgage rates saw the biggest decline, a uh, weekly decline, I should say, uh, for 41 years, the drop which Uh, So the average rate for 30-year fixed mortgage fall to 6.61% from last week, 7.08%. Interest rates expectations are certainly driving a lot of the market cycles uh, right now, maybe with the exception of the crypto space, where SBF seemed to be doing all of that. But from memory, I seem to think that often markets are often very volatile around this time of the year. And speaking about volatility, the London Metal Exchange, or LME, is hiking initial margin by 28% on nickel, which the exchange has targeted for heightening monitoring due to heavy volatility in recent days where the exchange came out saying that it would undertake enhanced monitoring of nickel after it fell as much as 15%, having already breached the LME's 15% daily limit uh, price swing on Monday. And I think many of us will remember what happened earlier this year with the LME and nickel. All right, let me bring you in here, Jem, um, just to maybe touch on some of the things sort of uh, high level that's caught your attention since we last spoke, uh, either in terms of markets, volatility...
0: Yeah, I think the biggest uh, takeaways, and you mentioned some of these are, you know, at least here from stateside, um, you know, the U.S. elections, uh, significant outperformance by Democrats uh, in a a midterm cycle where uh, they win the Senate um, and uh, just close in in the House. Um, uh, I do think that is important. A lot of people kind of would would maybe mention uh, that it that it's oh, it's still you know split. Congress, et cetera. I, I do think there's importance to that. Um, I think we'll get to that later in the show uh, a bit. Um, uh, obviously, CPI uh, coming in week was a, is a huge, you know, kicked off a massive rally, uh, biggest uh, one day rally of the year, um, so, uh, which is not, was, was a fairly enormous given some of the moves we've already had this year. Uh, I think we'll dive into that and, and what that might mean and, and how that fits into the broad uh, kind of inflationary uh, landscape. Um, and then, you know, I think those are the two biggest takeaways. Obviously, uh, we're, go- we're heading into the holiday season, uh, you know, some of the seasonality, et cetera, I think is important to look at and, and, and not just from a magical construct. Again, thinking about what is driving some of the seasonality, what does historically and how does that fit into now? How is this time maybe different or, or the same? Um, so, uh, those are the main things in terms of events and things we've looked at. Uh, obviously, there's some structural things that we'll, we'll talk about too in the vol markets and, and broadly uh, kind of uh, where, where we see, see those things right now.
1: Absolutely, and I think in fairness, I think it's worth mentioning that last time uh, we talked about this, um, you kind of teed up some of these uh, surprises that could come into the markets uh, very well, so um, so it's uh, definitely worth paying attention to, uh, to this. From a trend-following perspective, it was another correction week, uh, with many of the bigger trends, like fixed-income currencies, energies, moving against the bigger trends and inflicting some pain on trend-following positions. This is, of course, as it should be, trends don't move in a straight line, and in fact, I discussed with Rich a few weeks ago that trends can in fact look very different from each other, which is why you need to give them a bit of space uh, to move around. For the month of November uh, overall, as far as I can tell, very few markets have provided positive contributions so far, but we still have a couple of weeks to go, so a lot of things can happen from here. My trend barometer continues to be pretty weak. Uh, Yesterday it closed at 23, which is a very weak level, so kind of teeing up with the uh, performance that we see and speaking of performance and this is as of Wednesday because we're recording a day early the beta 50 index down 4.1% so far this month still up 15 for the year SockGen ct index down four and a half still up 21 for the year SockGen trend down about 5 still up 29 for the year and the SockGen short term traders index down 3 quarters of a percent uh still up 11 and 3 quarters percent so far uh, this month the msci world is up Um, Three and uh, three quarters thereabouts, still down 18 and a quarter for the year. World government bonds having a good month, up 1.44%, and the S&P 500 down almost 2% as of yesterday, down 17... Oh, sorry, up 2% as of yesterday, down 17% or so um, for the year. Now, let's dive into a few questions. Uh, most of them come, came in via Twitter when they found out that you were coming on. Jem, of course, we always get lots of questions. So that's great. We appreciate it. But we did have a question in that came in a little bit uh, earlier, and this is from Dave. And Dave just asked, I would like to ask Jim what he thinks about this inverted yield curve and why it's not being covered in the press and are they trying to hide it? Or does it not matter any longer? Another question for Jim is where he would keep his money to protect his spending power. And maybe the question should be more related to whether or not precious metals are a good place to protect the value. Any thoughts for Dave there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we'll, we'll walk
0: through some of these as we kind of talk bigger picture. But, uh, you know, uh, I've talked about this for some time. Uh, there's, a, there's a big difference between cyclical and secular Inflation. Um, we've lived in a world now for 40 years um, where they've been one in the same. Uh, that all that has mattered is is the short-term cyclical effects because we've been in one secular trend of disinflation, and the, you know that's led to monetary policy dominance. So I won't I won't rehash that whole uh, conversation, but I think it's important to note that um, every who's traded the bond market pretty much ever, uh, that, that, I mean, in, that's currently trading, right, uh, is uh, in every algo that's probably been written that's really looking at, at how things work, um, focuses on cyclical effects. Um, and the cyclical effects, uh, and this has been the case, the curve's been inverted, mind you, uh, from a lot lower in the 10-year. Um, and so, uh, you know, you've been getting a credit to uh, to, uh, to have the duration, to, you know, um, uh, effects of, of yields going higher, um, and that's been been an awesome trade. We've been talking about that for some time. That doesn't mean uh, necessarily that uh, yields are too high. It just means that that's what the bond market thinks, and, and the bond market's been very wrong for over a year now, um, and in lots of different ways. Um, and so, uh, I think there's um, reason to believe uh, that that the secular effects, so long-term um, yields are still, uh, you know, yields are still low. Um, uh, and and short term but in the short term that that you know over the next year or 6 months really that that cyclically we're going to get a little bit of you know disinflation in a more secular inflationary period um and we can get into that later in the show but but um you know i think i think that that inversion of the curve this is a little bit different if you look at yield inversion you know the the uh, yield curve inversion it takes all periods inflationary and non-inflationary and the inflationary periods are a bit different and how, you know, what that means. Yes, it, it can still mean recession, but that doesn't mean disinflation necessarily. We can look at the 70s and talk talk through that. You can be in a stagflationary environment, right, where you still have significant longer-term increasing inflation in the context of a recession. And I think a lot of, very few people are really putting those two things together. It's always a uh, recession, non-recession, where are we, ha- you know, what's happening. But but the, but, the you know, we could have both. Uh, and I think the, the the bond market's getting that part wrong, um, in my opinion. Um, now, to the second part of the question, how do you protect against secular inflation, right? Um, you know, obviously, gold hasn't worked as well. A lot of people are kind of scratching their heads. Again, I'll get into this a little bit more. We've done some work on on uh, you know uh, gold and how it tends to work, and and we do still believe precious metals will do very well, and in particular,ly I think there's a significant opportunity to upside long dated calls in gold, uh, especially given how Vol has done uh, in other places, which where it's got a lot higher, and where in gold it really hasn't yet. So there's a a, a Vol um, uh, element to this as well as a directional element that that can really. Uh, you know, be an interesting bet. Um, one of the more interesting bets out there in, uh, you know, in the vol space, if you ask me. But again, we can dive into that a bit later. We'll so, dive yeah. into
1: all of that. Sure. Okay. All right. The next uh, few questions are probably shorter, and I don't expect you to necessarily have long answers. Um, and also, I I'm trying to get used to getting questions via Twitter um, because usually they're a little bit shorter, and you have to kind of uh, uh, decipher a little bit what 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 is being asked. Um, but let's go for it. Um, uh, the first one uh, comes from, and also the other thing I find is that, of course, when, when it comes from Twitter, people have kind of funny names. And the first one is from Enron Musk. Um, and he asks, or she for that matter, would be interesting to hear Jim's analysis on hedge fund redemption dynamics over the next three to six months. Now, I don't know if you have a view on that, but that's the question. Hedge funds have been performing quite well,
0: honestly, uh, from a broader uh, viewpoint. Um, I think the broad view. There are definitely parts which we talked about. I think last uh, episode, you know, of the market, particularly long vol, which have been dramatic underperformers relative to what you would hope and expect into this type of a market decline. Um, but broadly, uh, hedge funds have done very well, particularly particularly relative to you know equity markets, bond markets, etc. And um, and I think that's a secular. Trend meaning for the next ten years, I think I would expect that. I, you know, again, passive investment, long-only investment, uh, we've talked about this before, has become so dominant, ingrained in, in pretty much every corner of the market that there, uh, there's just been very few successful active managers, hedge funds, um, and uh, I think you're going to see a, a broader move from broad asset management into alternatives broadly, um, and and I include trend and other things and in, in kind of that broad non-correlated investment uh, sphere um so um i do think we're seeing uh, a good time for that so I, i'm not looking for a bunch of redemptions from the hedge fund space if anything i think there's a a wall of money that is working its way into that space and and there's uh from my experience talking to you know some of the biggest uh, you know citadel millennium all, all the big boys like they're they're not taking it. They're at capacity, and they don't. They're they're having a hard time finding where to put the money. Um, they have no lack of, of capital or redemptions. It's the opposite. And then there's a launching of a lot of big new funds uh, who are ultimately kind of off- offshoots of some of those other funds um, that that are coming online and are going to continue to come online. So. Uh, quite the opposite. They're not worried about redemptions. Again, there is there is some, we, as we talked about, relative to the long vol space and what that means uh, in certain corners of the market. And we'll get to that, I'm sure, later in the show.
1: Yeah, and there's always going to be this recycling of a switch between strategies. That's kind of normal, but, but I, I agree with you. Overall, uh, I think the active management uh, area is probably going to uh, do just fine. Um, so, yeah. Well, we appreciate Elon Musk, I was just about to say the wrong name, but Elon Musk is, of course, the name uh, for that question. Anyway, we have a question from John. Would love to hear Jim's update forecast for the next four weeks on December OPEX.
0: Yeah, I mean, today is uh, actually OPEX for November, so uh, important to note that uh, these are important periods to kind of give updates. Um, Again, we'll we'll dive in, this could be a long one, but uh, we're at the corner of, uh, you know, a, a. we talked about this about a month ago and, and really called for this rally uh, to really for things to to chop around uh you know early last month and then eventually with cpi you know through that cpi week with given the event fall and everything that we had to to really see and then the season uh the, the holidays coming up to really see some some rally so we're a month in now so you know important to look around and think but you know they seasonality is there for a reason, as I mentioned. I mean, it it exists because of low liquidity during these periods. Uh, Time compresses in these periods. Um, Not only do you have more holidays, just volume-weighted time. And I know that's a weird concept, but time is not really linear. So, you know, things can, nothing can happen for weeks and then you can, you know, have a lot happen all of a sudden in a day or two. And that really is a function of liquidity and volume. So given certain dynamics, there is structural support um, broadly. Uh, and, uh, and, and on top of that, you have time passing, which is accelerating some of that support. And uh, you have less liquidity on the other side to absorb that. So those uh, forces can be Outweighed. So I, I would broadly, um, you know, I think a, a little bit of sideways action in the very short term. Uh, continued vol compression makes a ton of sense here uh, as we digest. Um, you know, maybe another little head fake, right, to try and shake people who are um, trying to, you know, play long here in the seasonal period. But broadly, this is a period to be constructive on equities, despite what we think is a secularly um still secular, you know, downturn in equities that, that will continue once this period is 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 passed.
1: Yeah. Okay, cool. Um then there's a few sort of quick well, I don't know if they're quick, but let's make them quick uh, questions from Jay Zone. Um he's throwing a few things at you. Put uh, crude put versus recession. Um he talks about the 20 day um simple moving average um and standard deviation up all that matters is, is the 20 day SMA and standard deviation up. Uh, all that matters for trend followers. Probability of right tail risk that China plays ball. Motivation for national interest versus economic prosperity. Take that how you want, Jim. Um, yeah,
0: there's a lot in there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll be real quick with that one. It's, uh, you know, it's it's complicated, <laughs> yeah. You know you can't just look at the twenty day and two standard deviation up. But uh, you know, do Bollinger bands and broadly technical kind of things. Are they great tools? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, for primarily, you know, using them in a way to to measure. Uh, you know, framing everything in standard deviations is, is I think, uh, you know, important because it gives you relative, a, a better relative value tool for what flows look like that you don't know. So, there are things you know, there are things you understand about what flows are based on, you know, the information you have, but there's always going to be things that you don't know. And in the context of what you know, if you can look at technical things like that, they will give you context for strength and weakness from the things you don't know. And that's how we broadly use those things. Um, um I don't know if I've answered all those questions, but that's that's in terms of those types of things what what I would what the one thing I would say and just broad
1: approach. Sure, sure. And I, I we'll come back to all the more macro points, uh, I think, anyways. Um, but we appreciate the question, Jason. Question from TheSlaughter79. Flows, OPEX, Delta, hedging, Gamma, Vanna, Charm stuff for the rest of the year. I think we've kind of touched on this already, but I do want to just, yeah you I know, think mention that, it. That, that touches on,
0: yeah, the next uh, three to... You know, next month of what we're looking at, four weeks or so, and, and I think again I, when I'm talking about flows that are supportive, you know, those Vaughn and charm flows are, are are definitely what I'm broadly referring to. There are other things as well, but
1: sure, sure. Last question before we dive into all the great topics is a question from Spec: What's the S and P 500 potential bottom, and when possibly could it could it bottom? And uh, my main scenario is minus fifty to minus sixty percent. From the top and bottom, at some point in twenty twenty four, very likely we could revisit COVID lows in real liquidation. Now, obviously, that's a big question. Lots of uh, yeah, forecasting I, I, required. <laughs> so, I'm, yeah, I'm interested in how you you're going to answer this. Yeah, one. Yeah, <laughs>
0: prediction. Everybody wants up or down and wants a price target, right? Uh, it, our in our view, prediction doesn't work that way. It's it's not. Uh, productive to think about it in that way. Um, it's important to think about it as, again, a distribution of probabilities. Uh, things change and change that, you know, bend uh, that distribution. Those probabilities are, I know this sounds complicated, but they're out in different periods of time. Um, and that, think of it as a three-dimensional surface. Uh, you know, as an options trader, that's kind of how how I would probably think about it, and the, the realized probabilities are changing. Um, we're not just pulling that from the implied volatility surface. The implied volatility surface is often very, very wrong about these things, but we do look at that as as an input to kind of as well as macro flows, et cetera, uh, to to what happens. So that being said, uh, again, uh, you know, we again, I'll reiterate, believe this to be a secular decline in markets. Uh, we do not think we have seen the lows yet. Um, that said, we do believe within that we are in a short term cyclical positive period um, how hard, how high can it run before it goes down? Um, it could run a little bit uh the fed's going you know in the process of Uh, pausing, but they're going to pause, not pivot. It's going to be gradual, and they're not going to want the market to run too much. They are ultimately going to continue to sell calls. Uh, Inflation is, uh, you know, uh, one of their two major mandates, and they are, you know, they they are not done. Um, And that is kind of the the reason, you know, you can have conviction that this thing can only run so far um, in the short term. And again, as long as we're right about this being a secular inflationary period, which we, we have some conviction in, even though we're in a cyclical kind of uh, downturn to inflation within the context of that, um, you know, then, then we should be, uh, you know, again, we believe that, that the market uh, will will ultimately, given where valuation started, given historical uh, context for what's happening here, um, you know, at least another uh, 5 to 20 percent, I know it's a wide range, but, that you know, we can move those in, that in days in, in this type of a market, depending on what's happening below where the lows were. Um, you know, uh, that said, there are some structural, you know, other things that we believe, uh, unless we get broad uh, stress and liquidation, meaning, uh, you know, really something, another level like China and the U.S. Like again, an invasion of Taiwan, some real. Uh, something that's going to to bifurcate the world economy, which could happen, but unless we see that, we we do see that there's there are opportunities and there's enough money, floating around that that there will be, you know, we're not going to see. It. We don't think at this point again, unless we see one of those things, a, a 2008 type scenario. We think it will be a much more contained um, okay. decline.
1: Okay, and all I would say uh, before we dive into the topics, uh, just to uh, further answer you, spec uh, for this question. If you want someone who is not afraid of giving some really um, outside the box answers about that, it is exactly the episode we released on Wednesday with Simon Hunt. He gives you both, uh, you know, some some dates uh, or I should say time periods and and some pretty big scenarios, uh, both for equities, currencies, um, um, yeah, interest rates, um, the whole thing. So um, feel free to dive into that episode. All right, Jim, we've got some topics, and um, again, I think it'll be a pretty sort of, um, how should I say, Uh, we're going to pay it a little bit by ear today, and and so I'm going to let you, I'm going to spur you up with some things that we talked about, and then uh, we'll see how we go. But of course, since we last spoke, we've had a U.S. election. Uh, we've had as you mentioned uh, earlier, we've had somewhat unexpected or better than expected I should say CPI numbers they were not unexpected for some um and that obviously has an impact uh, including on volatility uh, it certainly has had an impact on many markets um from a trend following perspective. but how do you see and what what are the what is the importance of of the out of these outcomes we've had?
0: yeah, so um when we talked a month ago we were not only talking about the technical like seasonal factors and liquidity there and kind of the Von charm flows event ball etc but we were part of the uh, case for why there was likely to be a rally was also because you know inflation was likely we were likely to get some type of a uh, some good news from cyclical inflation and that's why we're talking about a pause, by the Fed, and that's why we were getting some of that communication, which seemed to, you know, point in this direction. Um, and and we got those, you know, that's what we got in CPI. It was kind of uh, not a huge surprise, I guess I would say, in the sense that, uh, you know, yes, it was a surprise relative to expectations, but the fact that that would be possibly or likely coming um, was not out of the blue. Um, so that CPI print, print um, you know, plays into this, Cyclical kind of rally, Uh, you know. The question is, um, is the market getting ahead of itself now, right? Uh, And uh, you know, a seven point seven print, uh, you know, uh, in the context of of, uh, an eight percent or so expectation, when a lot of those these things are lags, Um, you know. Again, I'd like to point back to history. If you look at the nineteen seventies, we had you know three major recessions. It was still a very inflationary period throughout, you know, 65 to 85, right? For 20 years, we had runaway inflation. It's important not to miss the forest from the trees. Um, And just to give you historical context, I'm actually looking at the numbers here as I'm sitting, you know. um, You know, inflation in in 1969 went from, you know, 6%, 6 6.5%, call it, um, all the way down to three percent, right? Um, into that re- initial shallow recession, um, the Fed funds rate at that time. The way that they were able to accomplish that, to put it in context, this is William McChesney Martin as Fed governor, Fed Fed chairman. They took the Fed funds rate from three and a half, four percent, all the way up to ten percent. So, like, put that in context of what we're seeing. Now and what's happening now? I mean, we took the Fed funds rate from zero to you know four percent. Call it right, um, it's it, far cry from that amount of. And and the recession that we had in, in sixty nine seventy etc. was uh, was shallow, um, and uh, you know was enough to bring down inflation. Like I said, from six to to three. Call it, but that that was just the beginning of a much bigger secular inflationary push. Um, the responses to that recession. There was a lot of fiscal responses to it, and, and we're likely to continue to see that. We're already seeing that as things are slowing down, right? And that's part of, along with other structural things that are happening underneath the hood, that's part of what was, we believe is likely to continue to push inflation. Important to note, despite having a broad inflationary push that we've seen, we've, we've actually done it in the context of a Fed that's been able to increase the value of the dollar significantly, we have been able here in the US to export inflation. And we've been able to do that partially because there has been a much bigger slowdown outside of the US, which has cyclical dis- disinflationary effects. China shutting down. I mean, that's a pretty dramatic thing. Obviously what we're seeing in Europe with you know uh, some of the supply side you know, issues, yes, that's inflationary, but the, the economies are slowing down uh, abroad dramatically. Um, and have been slow, so we've been able to export some of that inflation with a stronger dollar. That's mean com- that's meant commodities have actually not exploded to the upside. Um, but, you know, yes, regionally specific areas, gas, et cetera. We know what's going on there, but broadly, as a as a bigger story, um, you know, CPI has you know cyclically been able to be be more controlled. Um, uh, the dollar coming down, ironically, is is actually going to import inflation back to the U.S. and is also with China reopening at the same time, which I don't think is a coincidence, but we can get to that later, is also going to co- to drive more of that kind of that inflation that's been a little bit hemmed in on commodities, uh, we believe a bit higher. Um, so there's a lot of things here. You, you, you can look at the, again, the, the trees and just miss the forest and what's broadly happening. There have been some things, ironically, that have actually been very helpful in fighting this inflationary story, despite how bad it's been, um, that that are have been Tail, you know, uh, tailwinds for uh, controlling it, which now the Fed, even though we're going into a cyclical period, will be battling against. And I, I just think it's important to understand history. I mentioned that 69 to 70 period, you know, similar thing with Arthur Burns, 73 uh, through 75. Inflation went from three all the way up, up to 11%, right? Pretty amazing if you think about it. Um, and then we went into a deep recession, much the deepest since the, the Great Depression, right, at the time. Um, and eventually, uh, you know, the, the Fed funds rate, uh, you know, dropped from uh, where, where they had, you know, what caused that was increasing uh, Fed funds rate up to, to 14%, right, all the way back up from four, four as we mentioned, after it declined. Um, which again, these are crazy numbers when you think about what we're going through now and everybody thinks the Fed is being so active, so aggressive. Um, and that pulled all the way back during that recession to 5%. But again, the key is the floor kept going up. And during those times, you better believe everybody was like, it's over. We've beat inflation. Look, it's uh, inflation's down from 14% to 5%. We have accomplished and then more to go 20%, right? Um, and so... And again, everybody wags their finger at Arthur Burns and says, you know, uh, you didn't do enough, but like what we've done in the context of, uh, of what's going on now is, is far from, you know, quote unquote enough, uh, far from what Arthur Burns did. And so, um, you know, we talk about Volcker all day long, but uh, anyway, I'll, I'll get off that soapbox, but I think it's important to understand that construct and what's happening to not get lost in the cyclical in the context of the secular and to look at the bigger pressures at work here.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, you also mentioned a point um, that we should touch on today, and that is kind of um, different trends or trends from different asset classes uh, during secular inflationary periods. Um, And I think maybe you've also done some work on that. You already kind of touched a little bit on it when you mentioned gold that might do better. Um, But are there other asset classes you want to have a little... Yeah, we have a China newsletter bonds?
0: that we're, you know, I did a presentation actually out in Miami at the EQ Derivatives Conference that was a, a kind of a, a, talked about this a bit. And we're working on a newsletter to dive in a little bit more on it. But, um, you know, we looked at, uh, we've been looking at uh, equities, domestic here, uh, you know, S&P 500 as a proxy, uh, bonds, 10-year as a proxy, uh, oil, gold, the dollar, just kind of these five broad um, you know, there's a lot more we could look at, um, but asset classes and how they perform dif- during a secularly inflationary period. There, there's no implied vol, kind of to look at, but really just how, what is the personality of how these different assets move during these broad secular periods? Um, uh, you know, the short term and the medium term and the long term. How do these things? How much mean reversion is there? How much short-term volatility is there? How much long-term volatility is there? Um, how is it biased, right? Uh, and so we did a you know a broad study on that, and uh, you know I, I could probably take a, a couple hours just talking about this, but I'll give you kind of a broad. Um, overview, because I think it's important to think about, like, you know, if we are in that period, what what's going to win secularly? Obviously, the last forty years, if you got you know, the 60-40 part right, right uh, on, on stocks and bonds, you you crushed and outperformed uh, dramatically for a long period of time. You've done very well. So, getting those broad themes right, even though you know year to year, day to day, may not be the the answer. You know, can can make for a huge opportunity. So, um, so yeah, and, and I'll, I'll just give a quick summary. Uh, you know, again, we'll dive into this and in, in other things. I'm sure you'll hear from me in other places. But, you know, uh, equities, uh, despite first order effects, uh, which is inflation makes assets nominally go higher. Right. Uh, we know and we've talked about this, but during you know that last inflationary period and during inflationary periods broadly um, due to second order effects, which are kind of uh, the, the effects of inflation on flows um, uh, actually, uh, ironically, go, you know, markets go down uh, or or have less of an upside drift I should say be, uh, during these periods um, we've talked about this which is it's counterintuitive because of those first order effects you would think of anything you know eight to ten to 12 percent inflation would lead to more upside drift in a nominal asset. But you know, as we've talked about, 60, you know, 65 to 82 or 67 to 82, uh, you, know, you look at that period, market went nowhere in nominal terms, lost 70% of its value. We've talked about that. Um, but, but that's true for inflationary periods broadly uh, on a rolling basis. Um, so upside drift comes down, which ironically drops volatility because there's a lot of realized volatility to the upside over longer periods of time on top of that important to note uh, it actually reduces downside volatility too because you do have those first order effects as the market comes down I and mean, this is over longer time frames I want to be clear not on shorter time frames on longer time frames we'll talk about the shorter but over longer time frames it re- reduces downside volatility because those first order effects make markets significantly cheaper as they go down because of not only again eight 10 whatever percent inflation per year compounded over long periods of time just you know, takes you out of, you know, makes things, the cash flows alone, it puts a pit put on the business, on the market. But also because generally these periods of inflation are demand push economics. And so revenue actually does quite well, 67 to 82. i to be clear, everybody's talking about recession and all that. They're playing yesterday's secular story, but 67 82, market went nowhere, but the economy did very well. GDP growth was above trend in real terms during an inflationary period. In real terms, I want to reiterate that, outperformed what we've experienced recently. A demand-push economy actually drives higher GDP. Um, and so, uh, you know, that also, that, that earnings, the, the growth over periods of time also puts a put on, on the market. Um, so, those first-order effects um, broadly do cushion declines more. During inflationary periods, so those first order effects. Second order effects um, obviously are, and I can go into all of them, but, but uh, less the value of money goes up. there's just less money to invest. And, and you know, across assets, not just stocks, but across assets, that's a second order effect. So demand for investment goes down. Reverse teen effects. So yields go up all of a sudden. Less money going to equities. We've had a you know this TINA effect. All of a sudden, nobody's talking about the reverse TINA effect, which is you know bonds have gone from zero to five. Guess what? A lot of people say, well, you know, what? I don't really want to be in equities. I'm going to go t- get that five percent or you know whatever it is and, and somewhere else. So reverse TINA effect takes money out of equities and, and moves demand out. Discounted, uh, you know, first thing everybody thinks about when they think is you know. Uh, uh, you know, the discounting of cash flows obviously makes growth stocks and, and longer-term earnings worth less uh, foreign equity. So, that's a, just, a, just a structural effect. And then another one that nobody really talks much about is when like, there's less liquidity, uh, less um, uh, interest rates go higher, there's less money out there, there's less liquidity, not just to buy assets, but to provide liquidity. And that tends to lead to more short-term volatility, right, even though we're talking about long-term vol being – on a realized basis being more com- compressed, risk premia increased during these periods because people can't take uh, the same risk because there's just not enough liquidity, not enough money to absorb risk. Uh, that Fed put is gone, right? That means that there's going to be more um, general volatility and more risk premia. So those risk premia effects really broadly increase the risk of trading, which reduces people's willingness to commit assets, uh, commit as much money as well uh, on a risk adjusted basis. So I can go on, there's a little bit more, but those these are all second order effects to um, inflation they're not the first order but they are more powerful ultimately as we've seen historically to equity uh, reducing equity demand and ironically a reduction in equities over the long period uh, given these first order effects decreases long-term volatility
1: so I have and a I, follow-up question yeah, on that um, but, um, but I have also two observations um, before that one is of course uh, and I don't know if you caught this um, uh, Stanley Druckenmiller's interview recently uh, on CNBC where he kind of talked about that his expectation was that uh, equities over the next 10 years probably won't do uh, much from here. They will do a lot in between, but maybe 10 years from now, we're going to look be looking at more or less the same Levels of equity. So I don't know if that's your, your view. I'm not gonna you toot can... my horn, but I, I am a little bit.
0: Uh, we were a, probably a year out in front of Drunken Miller, but having yeah. him and you know on your side is a is a side, great yeah. it's a great person. Yeah. To Although have, I will say he was, you've been saying for a year. Yes, that's sure. where we're going. And in my opinion, and, and it's great to have other brilliant minds in the space. Um, kind of uh, that I've seen a lot of this and, and our big picture thinkers be on the same page. And, and I think he very much is. Uh, we don't agree on everything, but there's a lot w- of what he's saying now that you know we've been saying for for some time and, and that I completely agree with.
1: Yeah. Although a little bit of a warning here, Jim, that <laughs> the, the crypto space also got very je- cheerful when they had Droganmin on their side like <laughs> that's a year true. ago. <laughs> but that's, but that's a different story. By the way, the reverse Tina effect, uh, we could name it Anit, I mean, that's just Tina in reverse. So uh, oh. I'm not sure it's going to catch on, but we could. <laughs> yeah, that's but, not as catchy. But, as my, <laughs> that's a, not very it, attractive. It's it, like it, an Indian I <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Know, yeah. It, um. Anyways, my real question comes when you talk about these things, about how short-term volatility might increase, longer-term volatil- volatility might compress. Um, and as everybody can tell, I'm not a ball vol- expert here. So, But does it change the way you trade volatility. And the reason I ask is, of course, because volatility, at least in my mind, is a relatively new phenomenon for investors, meaning institutional flows has not really participated in it very long. And, of course, the VIX is only, you know, 18 years old. And so it spent most of its time in a secular uh, environment where interest rates were coming down all the time. So... So just kind of, you know, curious about how you think this might be different, perhaps, for the vault space.
0: Yeah, to be clear, we have puts were created in 1977. That's when they were created by the SIBO. They were not actively traded till mid 80s, really. Um, So we have no real implied volatility data from an inflationary period. Um, so, I cannot sit here and tell you what the risk premium on these things is going to do relative to realized. I can give you broad conjecture um, and, you know, we're trying to do some of that analysis. It's difficult, right? You have to kind of uh, go with what you know about market structure and think more qualitatively um, about these things. Um, but uh, but to be clear, um, risk premium, as I mentioned, does tend to go up during these periods. Um, so... Um, I can talk about realize, I can talk about broad trends about realize, you know, but but it, the, the point here is there's less liquidity, which means more opportunity, right? If you're willing to be somebody who warehouses risk. Um, uh, and when you start looking at long-term trends, that represents some bigger long-term opportunities. Um, if the long end of all, I think it's important to note, is truly contained, right? Um, if If, you know, Again, I'm talking three years, six years, ten years out. Right, we start talking about really long-term vol. Um, that's a huge benefit. Liquidity is the least in that those things, and and if you can, there's always this core part to to trading vol where, um, much like kind of trading the yield curve, where there's an upward kind of tends to be an upward slope, uh, a, a a contango, right. To uh, to the vol surface, and because of the amount of Vega in things in the in the risk premium uh, further out, uh, particularly to the downside, you tend to, to those are those are again theoretically great things to sell in order to own other shorter dated vol mechanisms, and if you have an ability to to use those things to own vol, right? There's just uh, people can hedge much more easily. Um, and, and that will, you know, the point is, the thing that really blew up the vol market in 08 and, and uh, during other periods in recent history is long-term vol exploding. Because people can always roll their puts further out and use premia and do things to kind of, uh, to manage positions. But when long-term vol really starts blowing out, it's a liquid. You know there's a reason long term is in the or you know long term capital management like when that stuff starts blowing out you know particularly puts out of the money longer dated um you know those are things people sell willy nilly just uh, you know Warren buffett does it i mean it's a you know it's a it's a long term uh kind of profitable strategy right um if you're if you can size it appropriately and and deal with it. so people can manage the you know Sell those, buy near data, do other things uh, to use long-term vol, whether it's calls or puts. Um, broadly, vol manages over kind of shorter to medium timeframes to not get too out of control. Doesn't mean it's not going higher in the short term. Doesn't mean you can't have a liquidation and get a real vol events in the short term. You can get, you can and will get short-term liquidations. Okay, um, but broadly, if you can do that, it, it stops vol from going into some secular tailspin that can, you know, similar to 08, you know, again, people don't really know this, but, but in 08, you know, 10 year ball spiked to 60. I mean, it was very liquid and wasn't there for long, but that's a crazy number for 10 year. I mean, that's not crazy That's just not crazy. That's insane. I mean, but it went there because of, you know, because of how, uh, how high ball was for how long and how much you know, short interest there was in that stuff to push it, that was just cause broad liquidation. So my point is that where long vol is and broad trends uh, to the supply and demand of it, how untethered that can become is critical to to the feedback loop um, for, for vol in the markets uh, and more than people understand. So that dynamic between calendars and long vol versus short vol is, is an important dynamic. So to answer your question again, without giving specific trades, like, you know, if if you can lean on that a bit, maybe it's not perfect, but lean on a bit like long vol is—you'll you know, get enough mean reversion; it'll come back, and markets ultimately, um, you know, uh, in, in these type of environments, because of that inflationary push, uh, will, will uh, provide some level of support, some level of uh, long-term mean reversion, uh, and dampen the upside as well. That that, that provides opportunities. So, so it, it does change the approach. Uh, it makes it. It makes uh, it makes managing a vol position particularly from the short side more manageable for a lot of all managers and uh, you know there's a reason to believe and again i I started to talk about these trends we talked about one s p there's like bonds there's gold uh, but in SM equity in particular um, you know yes uh, cyclically I believe there's a great opportunity coming for long vol. we've talked about that based on SKU and other things. we'll dive into that a bit later i think but longer term there is some Truth and reason why some of these dynamics that we're seeing are happening, based on a more long-term projection of what happens during inflationary periods, like this flattening askew, the the um, you know the underperformance of vol, even despite you know vol being a bit elevated here, like you could make an argument, a very strong argument, that if we are truly in a secular uh, inflationary period, that that's actually logical, Um, uh, you know, on a more longer term. Timeframe. Again, important to not confuse that for for a short term.
1: I do want to talk about skew because it's very low at the moment, um, and it doesn't mean necessarily that uh, you know we break lower. But um, before we go there, you mentioned all these other asset classes. As as far as I remember, at the moment, you focus on the equity space, right? But do you ever feel tempted to kind of say, "Wouldn't it be nice if I could just uh, expand my wings and"? And dive into volatility in other asset classes.
0: Yeah, all the time. In my personal portfolio, I do. Um, there's a reason we focus because we're very systematic on the equity space. You know, that was where we were a big market maker. You know, one of the biggest during the great financial crisis, and and that's where we have uh, models that are we we know are robust and 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 profitable. And there's a certain uh, amount of uh, when you have an edge, uh, you know, you start there and go with the low hanging fruit. There's no reason to overcomplicate things, but. Yes, I mean, I think you know, <laughs> you know, uh, my, my macro interests and, and broader picture, which are, you know, go above and beyond some of the systematic stuff. So we are actually in conversations and I'll leave it at that to, to do a more uh, a global macro vol product, um, uh, because we do have an edge there, and, and, and I think we've proven it through kind of uh, all these conversations over the last several years, you know, and, and I think, you know, there's a real opportunity there. It's a different product. It's a different type of thing, and, and, it, and it has, a, it's more of a long-term kind of macro view um, and taking those bets and the edge we have on the vol side to express it, whereas a lot of our other products are, are and again, I won't talk about the products too much here, but like are, are much more short uh, timeframes, uh, systematic kind of opportunities.
1: You should structure it as a private equity fund, Jim, uh, with 10-year lockup. <laughs> then you kind of have your playground uh, sorted out. Anyways, yeah, absolutely. back back to the program, as they say. <laughs> All right, SKU, it's low. Um, it's very low. Um, talk about that, um, what this means, and, um, and, and maybe also um, kind of how this has affected... Uh, perhaps volatility funds in general this year, uh, in a sense, that um, Vol has not performed. I mean, interestingly enough, and again, I'm saying this as an outsider, right? But it just seems to me that, like, Vol maybe in the last month or two have started to react a little bit more like it used to do than while in the beginning of the year it was, um, yeah, felt different. But, I mean, you're going to correct me, I'm sure, but it... That's just how I see it. But anyways.
0: yeah. I mean, we talked about this last month a bit, and I've talked about it elsewhere, but just to kind of review, you know, uh, in, in January and before, you know, uh, skew, uh, when we talk about skew, downside options versus, in, in the equity ball space, broadly is what I'm referring to, downside options versus upside options. Skew was actually in the, um, the 98th to 100th percentile, uh, you know, at the highs that often is the case the higher markets go you know there, there tends to be more hedging um, and and more demand uh, especially if times have been placid for some time but this was significant like really significant and, and the flows driving that were were you know fairly dramatic and significant and, and i guess that's not a surprise right we had uh, if you think about it feb march 2020 was a massive ball of uh, entities who who did hedge had incredible payouts and anybody who was short Got blown out during that time, and we talked about these cycles and how how the, these things ebb and flow. So there was significant uh, kind of, um, and again, it's not just psychological, right? It's also just quite simply those those entities who buy ball are around and have are getting inflows, so they buy more ball, and vice versa. So it's just it's simple math, um, but but psych- it's psychological as well. Uh, you know, mom and pops were buying puts there too to hedge. Um, and so, not surprisingly, you get a decline, uh, which was relatively well, for you know, well, well uh, expected, right? People, the Fed was trying to make sure people understood what was likely going to happen, and um, and obviously we had some surprises. But the point is, uh, you know, people were hedged, market went down, uh, and people with those hedges uh, who are long stock. Uh, You know, long puts, think of it just in a very simple term, um, now need to monetize their hedges, they're losing money on their stock, and they need to sell their puts. Um, And at first they're like, well, this this is just getting started, I'm not going to sell them. But then you know, the flow of selling comes in. Uh, these puts, which maybe were up enough, you know, somewhat to to cover some of their losses, uh, you know, but maybe an underperformance where people are like, oh, well, it's just getting started. It's going to be worse. Now, all of a sudden, they start collapsing. And, and, and now you have stock, which you're losing money on, and your puts are no longer hedging your longs. And people get a little nervous and start selling more. And now there's a avalanche of just selling puts. And it's a it's counterintuitive, but with the market down, if people own those puts and that's their only thing to protect them and it's not performing, now you get panic. You get a complete um, kind of, I gotta get out of these things. Like my mandate is such that this is supposed to hedge me, it's not. Uh, and we've talked about the long vol managers who are not just hedging their shorts, but like they have to make money in that scenario. and. Uh, you know, if they start losing. Not only do they get redemptions, and it's just plain math. But you know, they they lose ten percent. They have ten percent less, uh, and they need to sell ten percent of what they have. And, and so, it was just a reflexive loop. And and importantly, and I've talked about this before, the more vol selling that happens, it's not just bad for the implied performance, right? Clearly, uh, it, but it it actually affects, uh, you know, affects the the realized performance of the underlying, uh, and that's because. Somebody's got to buy those options. There's a tidal wave of, of options, uh, you know, and and somebody's warehousing them. That's market makers, that's banks, that's dealers uh, in all forms, um, and they're willing to buy it because they think it's cheap enough, and they can trade it, and they can hedge it, and and work out of it. But uh, I, you know, as we know that as as we saw in 2017, which was the lowest realized volatility in history by 30%, which we talked about, that selling starts getting, and it really pins realize vol and that's what we've seen to the downside realize vol has just collapsed um you know we get these short-term moves and then vol gets crushed and the market you know goes sideways for you know a month and then it rallies back and so uh, it's been a very non-volatile, you know, in short term, you get some realized moves, but, you know, for the most part, vol has been very, very contained. And more importantly, implied vol uh, has, has had a, a negative demand, you know, has had, uh, a, a, you know, every time uh market goes down, vol inputs get decimated in the market uh, ha- This so far this year. And that's brought skew uh, from the 98th to 100th percentile. To the zero percentile. I want to be clear: not like one percent, not two percent. We are at historically the lowest skew that I've ever experienced, and that the data sets have um, in, in the equity indexes. Um, it's essentially flat, um, and uh, you know the, the idea that we're in some really uh, you know risky environment with a potential World War III and all the things that you and I talk about all the time. Yet downside protection is the cheapest it's ever been. Is is notable. <laughs> Uh, it's it's interesting, right? And and again, there's some of the inflationary uh, things that I talked about in an inflationary environment, but but we're not there. Valuations are are still very high relative to history, um, and there's a lot of uh, tail risks, obviously, out there. Uh, it's important to note that once you get this broad liquidation, and people have given up on puts, and now there are sellers of puts uh, out there who are marketing their returns as a hedge to you know this is non-correlated returns. Look at how great we've been doing uh, into this decline. Um, you know that brings a lot of money in for to people who who uh, you know uh, who who think that well this is actually a good non-correlated way to make money. Now again, we mentioned there. Just like any other strategy, there's, you know, if it's sized properly and done in the right way, like there might be a, you know, a case for it at the right size. But the people get out over their skis, uh, you know, there's not enough liquidity in the space to sort of that. Now that, you know, my point is now the cycle is turning the other way. And we saw this 15 versus 16, you know, vol event, non-vol event, uh, early 18, vol apocalypse, late 18, vol collapse and a decline. The March, you know, Feb, March, 2020, now into recent, you know, we get this cyclical Performance of vol implied vol reaction, and it really is a matter of people crowding in and crowding out we've seen a lot of other um, types of strategies, but there's a reflexive effect which is really um, that as it moves it can really unpin the whole market and cause really uh, deleterious effects for the underlying asset. I said this in another pod, I forget which where I was talking about it, but you know implied vol in the s p has been the the little Dutch boy with his finger in the dike right um, holding back. Uh, where has increased elsewhere, which is, you know, FX, bonds, commodities, pretty much everywhere else. Um, and it's kind of pinned and tethered. It's held back kind of this really uh, this big liquidation um, and, uh, you know, we're at a point now where, where, you know, the Dutch boy is weak at the knees. He's been standing there too long and, and uh, you know, cracks are, you know, are, are showing up in, 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 the, uh, in the dike. And, and so I don't, you know, it's hard to say when, but, you know, we've gone from a room full of pillows where, you know, something happens and you fall down and you're cushioned to a, a room with gasoline on the floor. And I think that's an important distinction. Doesn't mean the the room's going to catch on fire. It doesn't mean you know that that something's going to blow up tomorrow. But uh, but things are getting more more dangerous. And 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 that's not just because skew is flat and the potential energy of it going higher is dramatic. Uh, markets have been more. You know, contained. So valuations are still high, and the more we rally back as as a function of this complacency, the more potential energy there is on a realized basis. Those are the basic things. But but again, as a cyclical, uh, like sorry, as a circular uh, reflexive effect. You know, once you move big enough, once those things start to move in in a meaningful way, the 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 effect can be big enough where you can really wash out uh, and force people back into buying vol in in a meaningful way. And being forced to hedge and that can cause itself a tail event as we saw Feb to March of 2020. Again, we talked about the day after Feb expiration started, ended the day after March expiration. When you're in these situations, people are not as well hedged, especially in the context of a a, a world where, uh, you know, any macro thing can be unexpected and happen. Um, you know, it, it, it's a it's a dangerous situation. Again, I'm not calling for a crash. Do uh, we deal with these things? As I mentioned in uh, probabilities, that tail is just getting fatter. And you gotta be aware of that. You gotta be thoughtful of that. And, and if you're looking at the last year and saying, oh no, like I can't take these vol losses anymore, get me out, which is what's happening with you know whether it's Artemis we talked about last month and and, and Chris Cole's Long vol product, other products, because just the losses have been too difficult and, and the performance has been so bad. Um, you know the more we see of that, the more you know uh, you know it's coming. the 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 positive performance is coming on the horizon, but it always takes a bit longer than you think because again people hold on and then eventually give up at the the worst worst time. So I don't think we're here yet. I've been saying that for some time. I think it's early to mid to maybe even late next year. We'll see. I, again, Q1 is what we were uh, initially kind of thinking here, but we'll we'll see. And that can get pushed out. It generally does take a bit longer than you think. But uh, but the market environment has changed on a you know on a cyclical basis. I want to be clear.
1: Exactly. Cool. And I think you were saying, when you told the story about the little Dutch boy with the finger in the dike, that actually he was not only getting tired, he wanted to get home to his mother to get some cookies. (laughs) That's how I remember your conversation (laughs) with Grant and and Bill. It was with Grant and Bill that (laughs) you uh, talked about this uh, story. Now, this is just kind of an an outside-the-box question that just comes to to mind, and I don't know if it's a, a good one or a bad one, but, you know, I remember back in 2018 when we had Volmageddon, we had the disappearance of XIV and that kind of structurally as far as i recall from listening to vol experts that kind of changed the dynamic of the market so you had a very big player that were used to doing one thing and 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 had had a pretty big market share and it kind of changed things this time around do you see a a change in the market structure for from from certain types of Players, let's call them that, um, leaving the market, uh, and 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 does it go back to? Um, I mean, I, I know we say this is not. I mean, with skew in the zeroth percentile, it's not happened before, at least not in your uh, career. But can we say anything about how long these periods last for before before things go back to more normalcy? Or yeah. Um... Again, there's,
0: we do believe, as I mentioned, that we're in a different regime than we've been in, or that we're entering a different regime. Um, and then take that in the context of also these cyclical things, which tend to, which are hu- functions of human nature that tend to repeat. And you gotta kind of reconcile those two things. Um, so, history, we're not gonna repeat history in the same way because we're in a di- different regime, and that's why I kind of referred to some of those long-term trends and things that might be different. Um, that said, the human nature part is is important. Supply and demand is critical in the short term, in particular, right to to, to outcomes. Um, so yeah, so I, I guess to answer your question,
1: like in terms of I guess timing it, uh, in terms of thinking, not so much that, but I was just I was just curious whether these things, like you know, um, in certain in certain situations, and we we talk about in the trend following world. I mean trends don't last forever. You know you have certain um you know, trends. they last for a few months and then they take a pause and then they come back and so on and so forth. And I don't know if there's anything similar in in your world, um or or maybe we're in fact still seeing so many things that hasn't happened before where we just say, well, we, we don't actually know um, things that you can broadly rely on,
0: uh, like, As a broad trend, you know, that's that's true throughout history in it's it's an insurance product, right? Like after the tornado comes through town, insurance premiums go up and it's a great time to invest in tornado insurance, right? Um, It doesn't mean at that moment it's a sale, right? Um, But I think if you then take that in the context of regime change and things that might be vol dampening – there might be an interesting vol selling opportunity broadly coming up that said that in the context of that, we have this again this cyclical um, kind of red flag for something that's going to you know again cyclically uh, likely happen in our view and and so um you know, I, I think uh, you, that's all you can lean on, right, is, is what you have uh, structurally, what you have cyclically, these are all affecting one another. And then, you know, deal with human nature and trends and markets and why things happen, you know, uh, and the context of, it. hey, this is how that might this be different and, and take that into consideration. As well, and, and and I guess that's that's kind of a our broad approach. So that's all you can do. There's obviously lots of uncertainty about all these things. Uh, that's why there's opportunity. Um, and, and you know, again, you have to lean on. You have to have conviction somewhere to to make money broadly. I don't think uh, if you don't have conviction, you don't. Uh, you know, an opinion for a reason. Um, and and you know, part of uh, our conviction has been on the secular story of inflation. We've been out in front of that. I continue to believe that. All the science, we're looking for contrary evidence all the time. Uh, We've yet to see any, uh, if anything, reinforcing evidence keeps coming. So, that now putting that in the context of all is is something that we're that we're using to our benefit while still understanding what's happened and being a deep, being deep in market structure for the last thirty you know thirty years or so. Uh, you know, uh, gives us uh, you know if that doesn't change, what other things are just generally you know things that are, are part of human nature and how how, how mark, microstructure works.
1: Sure, sure. Now, the last point before we wind down for today, and again, I don't know whether you feel we've actually already covered it. That's perfectly fine. But we did uh, write down a note about uh, liquidity and volatility, especially in the context of bonds and what they've been doing. Because as I said in my introduction about an hour ago, I mean, a lot of the market action at the moment is just driven by expectations to interest rates. I mean, that every time there's someone out talking about it or we have a number... Uh, that might or might not change the direction or the pace uh, of interest rates, then markets move. And so, have we done enough on this uh, for today, Jim, or is there any final thoughts?
0: There's an interesting thing to circle back on here, um, which is related. Um, I've talked about risk premia and liquidity, and kind of referred to how risk premia goes up during periods of inflation. Uh, not necessarily realize vol itself, you know, um, but the risk premium should. Again, we don't have as much evidence uh, on the implied vol in particular, but but there's just less liquidity, so there's less ability to absorb risk, right? If you have less players in inflationary uh, periods um, to absorb, let's say insurance, right? You're just going to have higher premium, and and so um, you know we broadly believe that those risk premium go up, which is an opportunity right? It's good for insurers. Um, does, it increases their risk as well. That's part of why that risk premia goes up, um, but it is an opportunity. Um, and if we now go back, circle back to some of these inflationary period uh, dynamics with some of the other assets, we talked about S&P 500, but I'd like to pull in um, kind of uh, oil and, uh, and the dollar, as as uh, kind of two of the examples we can talk about. We kind of referred to gold early, but but those two I think speak to, what happens during inflation period speak to liquidity. Um, uh, right now, uh, vol for both of those things has gone up dramatically. Um, and uh, the question is, is that warranted? Um, and, uh, and, and how are they similar? Both oil and the dollar, we talked about first-order effects. Um, have a they're a store of wealth, right? During a inflationary period, um, and and benefit from first order effects um, of flight to safety. Not to mention the kind of the related effects of, as we've talked about in other episodes, uh, when you have inflationary periods, you tend to go to into a period of, of competition and more geopolitical strife, more protectionism, uh, more fear of of the you know um, you know not having safety in um, assets. So both of those have benefited historically during inflationary periods. They both have upside drift over the long term, uh, unlike the periods of non-inflationary periods in nominal terms. Um, but liquidity, um, if you think about it, for the dollar actually goes uh, goes down because the Fed has less control. They're dealing with their their dual mandate. So whereas uh, controlling that, that dollar price, same with bonds, right? Uh, controlling, and, and bonds are a great example. During, you know, bond vol was dramatically compressed. The market, the Fed essentially had the bond market cornered and, and anybody who, you know, who traded euro dollar options or anything like that, basically that market died. There was zero vol, incredibly, incredibly impressed because of liquidity, dramatic liquidity during that time. As the Fed put comes off the table, Dixie, bonds, vol actually structurally goes higher. And again, it's because they're now battling a dual mandate. Uh, where they can't control, they can't just come in and do monetary policy whenever they want. Stag, inflationary. Uh, they're kind of in a box, right? Um, and that releases vol broadly. So that's not that's less about direction, but vol becomes higher reflexively because uh, implied vol becomes unpinned and risk premium go you up. Know I'm going to contrast those to oil. Oil, ironically, has been less pinned. Because there hasn't been one dominant force been able to control oil. They, we had a Fed put, but we didn't really have an OPEC put or anything along those lines for some time. Uh, much more kind of uh, a two sided market, as we've seen, right? Oil went to negative 30 and it went to, um, you know, uh, 180, right? Over this period. Uh, we've had a pretty crazy ride. That has driven recently. Vol much higher in the commodity market, oil in particular. I don't think many people are looking at the short side and energy and commodity vol. There is a OPEC put developing, a very strong one that we believe is structural. Really, in this period of of um, you know a, a period of of broad uh, resource scarcity, um, in a period of competition, those entities are going to flex their muscles more. They're going to have more power in in this environment, as we've seen. Um, And we believe that, ironically, even though that's scary, even though that that may make people want to demand vol uh, for the assets, we actually believe, and, and history says this is true as well, that vol, ironically, compresses for commodities because that downside gets cut off. The U.S. has already announced that they're going to refill the SPR at $72. That's not a put on oil, I don't know what is. And we believe this is broadly structural and that OPEC will defend price. And it'll be two-sided if it gets to a point where it's going to cause worldwide recession, that's not good for them either. So much like the Fed, they are going to be in there trying to control the volatility of, of oil, broadly make it go higher, which is good for them. And so we will get upside drift, as we believe, but with compressed volatility. So that ends up looking a lot more like equities, right, from a vol perspective, uh, what we've seen in equities for some time. So we think that's an interesting takeaway. And that is really, I know you asked the question of liquidity, but that's a function of the ultimate source of liquidity changing. Uh, Yes, the Fed will still be involved. They'll have less control, less control over liquidity in the commodity space. Um, There's a new kind of put out there,
1: which I think is important to talk about. The Russians might say there's the put is in, but they pronounce it Putin. <laughs> but there we are.
0: <laughs> I like that. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> all right, <psh>. let's
1: <laughs> let's like leave it. it. Let's leave it at that. Jim, thanks for um, thanks for spending some of your uh, Friday with us uh, and uh, sharing all of these uh, thoughts. Um, for those of you who enjoy these conversations, uh, please head over to uh, iTunes, Spotify. Amazon, wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a rating and review. It certainly helps other people to uh, to find uh, us. And make sure you follow Jim on Twitter. There's so much good stuff coming out. Uh, next week, I'm back with Mark. And so there will be a chance to tackle some of your questions that relates to what he's up to. Um, so you can, of course, as always, send them to info at From Jim and me, thanks ever so much for listening. And we look forward to being back with you next week. Until next time. Take care of yourself and take care of each other.